Welcome to the final episode of Climate Talks, the podcast, and today the video um, that follows the climate negotiations. And this year we followed COP27. And today we'll be you know, unpacking what happened, what did we learn, what we didn't learn, positives, negatives, and what was you know, happening at Sharm El Sheikh. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your co-host, Cathy Oak, and my regular series co-host, Jackie Peel, is on the panel today. Um, a bit more on that later. I would like to first acknowledge that we are meeting today and producing this podcast and video on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and pay respects to elders past and present. And we encourage our viewers and our listeners to also acknowledge the traditional lands that you are listening from um, and that you're working from today. So we're wrapping up our season. COP27 has been and gone earlier this month and we want to understand, you know, did it deliver? Have we got any closer to maintaining temperature at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius? What were the losses? What were the gains and where to from here? To help us answer this question, we've got this amazing panel, return guests, and as I said earlier, my co-host Jackie Peel. We have Robin Eckersley, Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor in the Discipline of Political Science, and Janine Felson, Research Fellow at Melbourne Climate Futures. Welcome back. And Professor Jackie Peel, the Director of Melbourne Climate Futures. Thank you for joining us on the panel today. The first question I want to ask in this concluding episode to unpack COP27 is each of you for a couple of minutes to briefly reflect on what your key takeaway was from COP27, positive, negative, a surprise. So we might start with you, Robin, if that's okay. Sure. Well, Cathy, I think the best thing that could be said about COP27 is that it nearly went backwards, but it didn't. So that's not a great deal to celebrate. Um, and we still have 1.5 degrees on life support, perhaps more serious life support than last year. Because uh, there was no serious follow through on what the breakthrough was at COP26, which was to finally acknowledge the elephant in the room, fossil fuels, and to seek a phase down of coal and inefficient subsidies, whatever they were. So there was no advancement on that agenda. And there was considerable behind the scenes effort, particularly in the last long, 40 hours of non-stop negotiations to actually unpick that. So fortunately that didn't happen. But as I said, that's not much to celebrate. No, I mean, speaking of the last 40 hours or so, I mean, you were there for the two weeks. Janine, what were your big outcomes? I think I will start on the positive. So for 30 years, small island developing states have been arguing for a systemic response to loss and damage. And COP27 actually closed that 30 year gap with an agreement to establish a fund to respond to loss and damage. I think that was a major step forward in the whole discussion on climate justice. So I would take that as a positive, but I would agree with Robin that not having made any significant advance, including um, mitigation that would help keep global warming below 1.5 and make progress on issues like fossil fuel, that was a big miss. And if we're talking about loss and damage, not having mitigation means you will have more loss and damage. 
So it was very much a mixed bag sort of outcome for COP27. And we'll unpack a bit more of that later. What about you, Jackie? Highlights, positives, negatives? Well, I, I just want to put it in context because I think this COP was also designed to be an implementation COP and the Egyptians had a particularly horrible theme of towards together for implementation, which was splashed all over the venue. Um, so in that context of not being a high profile COP and sitting in, in between COP26, which definitely was high profile and what we're expecting to be more high profile next year, we weren't expecting to see very much. And it definitely delivered on that. Where we did see some positive outcomes, as Janine has highlighted, is on loss and damage. And part of the reason that that was such a big um, celebrated outcome was because of the 30-year gap. This has been a long-term issue for developing countries and small island states. But also because it was a bit of a surprise that it was delivered at this meeting. It was a fight to get the issue even on the agenda at COP27 and marathon negotiations uh, at the start to put it on the agenda and then to actually deliver on that um, against uh, some of the uh, the expectations that countries particularly like the US, um, Europe, Australia would have red lines that couldn't be crossed on loss and damage for it to deliver was a, a big surprise and a positive outcome from the negotiations. It's good to have a positive in amongst the, the chaos and the, or the circus that is COP. So let's talk about some of the specifics or some of the threads that were just started then at the start of your comments. Robin, maybe we'll go to you again um, and think about if there were particular outcomes with respect to mitigation um, in the negotiations and also if you could talk about it, how geopolitical moments of which there are many and um, how they impacted on the negotiations. Well I think as everyone's aware the Ukraine war has generated a major energy crisis which has created some real challenges but also some new opportunities in relation to the energy transition. The price of gas, coal and oil have all gone up and we're all feeling that already. One of the big, well on mitigation, uh, there was an effort to continue to ramp up pre-2030 pre ambition, but those efforts, uh, if you look at the United Nations Environment Report on the emissions gap, made an absolute negligible contribution to holding warming at 1.5 degrees. So that's the first point. So what we really wanted to see was a lot more follow through on that breakthrough from COP26, as I mentioned earlier, but that didn't come to pass. Instead, there was some sneaky wording snuck in about new forms of low emissions energy, which is really code for gas, which was deeply disappointing. Now, this is interesting because obviously it's going to benefit Australia, uh, almost be cover for continuing our gas exports saying it's greener than other places, you know, using the drug dealers defence, cleaner drugs than other exporters. But it also raised some really difficult questions and areas which I think need to be on future agendas and that's just global transition. There's a lot of language about just transition, focusing more on regionally dependent coal regions in particular, but not on global just transition. So to put, think of the African nations who are sitting on a lot of fossil fuel resources, particularly gas, and they're saying to the EU and other rich countries, so you're saying we can't develop this? We're very poor, a lot of employment's tied up here. You pay us to help us with our renewable energy transition or why shouldn't we use our gas and make a killing like other people like Australia are? This is not fair. 
and it's patently deeply unfair. So it's not on the agenda, but something like a global just transition um, set of principles and strategies. There are some new just transition partnerships that are materialising. Uh, I think the poster child here is the one with South Africa, where there's huge employment in the coal industry, but they're mainly loans and loan guarantees, but loan guarantees are good. And there's one that was announced on the sides at G the G20 with Indonesia, and I think Australia should enter into one with India. I've made that argument elsewhere. So this is maybe some new positive developments, but happening under the radar and not really part of the formal negotiation. There is a you know, proposed fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, and that's doing the rounds, but you don't see any, anything about this happening. And of course, the next host is um, the United Arab Emirates, and we know that Saudi Arabia and other petrol state, petro states have been working in the background to sort of put the brakes on this just energy transition and phasing down or phasing out, not just coal, but we want gas and oil there as well. And that's what's not happening. And that's the insidious development underway at the moment. Yeah, we might get in later a bit more about the behind the scenes or the, the non-state actors or the lobbyists that were at, at this particular COP as well, maybe later on. But let's go back to climate finance. Janine, if you want to talk a bit more about loss and damage or even some other aspects of finance that were... I'd um, like to actually in. pick up on something that Robin um, discussed on the issue of just transition. Just after COP26, the United Nations Secretary General established a high-level expert group on net zero commitments, and they delivered a 10-point recommendation plan uh, that did actually make it into the outcome of the COP27 that speaks to not only how to ensure there's credibility and integrity in net zero commitments by non-state actors, but it also addresses issues around fossil fuels, it addresses issues on offsets, it also addresses issues on just transition, which is actually a really significant development in the context of net zero, because net zero has always been just mitigation focus, but now we have just transition in there. In addition to that, in the outcome of COP27, there is several provisions dealing with just transition. So it's definitely on the climate agenda and making that central will be critical because of the context that we're dealing with, with the um, petro states hosting these um, meetings and of course the significant lobbying that's occurring. On finance, there was very little beyond the establishment of the fund that really could be announced as major breakthroughs on finance. However, there is a lot of traction being gained around uh, the reform of multilateral development banks. There's a lot of discussion now going into how do we shift uh, to the trillions, ensuring that those trillions reach the billions of people who need it. And I think that discussion is really important. So there will be a series of discussions on um, what is called 2.1C of the Paris Agreement with workshops. And of course, there's a continuation of this process for defining a new climate finance goal uh, going into 2024. So whilst there weren't any major announcements of finance being delivered, um, there were some trickles in uh, relation to loss and damage or rebranded adaptation funds. Um, there are processes that are important to be aware of and ensure that there is follow through so that the finance that we need to unlock all of these types of transitions can actually um, be tapped into. So there's some actual implementation. <laughs> actual implementation <laughs> that needs to occur. <laughs> yeah. 
goodness, I'm sure you probably want to pick up on some of what was just said, Jackie. Feel free to maybe comment on or add to um, either what Robin or Janine mentioned, or I also have a question for you that you might want to pick up on the role that Australia played, because I understand Australia certainly were very much involved in the loss and damage discussions or chairing of those conversations. Yeah, so Cathy, I might start there because obviously it was a very different uh, Australian delegation that attended this COP compared to uh, last year and that's reflecting the change in government and the, the very strong focus on climate policy that this government is taking and um, that climate policy being an essential part of how they're uh, relating to our neighbours in the Indo-Pacific. So uh, we saw, uh, we did see the Prime Minister going, which in the Australian media, media attracted some attention, but we did see very high level um, ministerial participation, particularly Minister Bowen, who led the delegation in the second week and, and was entrusted with some of the finance negotiations in the final stages together with counterparts from India. So the general theme was a much more constructive um, engagement than in past years. Uh, a, a much greater commitment on um, issues, particularly around 1.5, uh, about uh, on the mitigation side of things, but also strongly supporting uh, Pacific Island uh, delegates and indeed First Nations delegates generally uh, with the kinds of issues they are concerned about. Apparently, Australia also played quite a strong role in the loss and damage negotiations, so it was a background role. Um, there were reports that Australia had been opposing a loss and damage fund together with the US, but that that shifted in the final stages of the negotiations. I think on loss and damage uh, generally, I, there's been a lot of negative talk in the Australian media following the negotiations that somehow Australia is now uh, committing to a $2 trillion fund uh, for helping developing countries with loss and damage. What we do have from the COP27 negotiations is an agreement to establish a fund. Uh, it's an empty shell. There's not uh, rules in place yet. That the, the decision requires those rules to be developed over the next year and reported back on the final COP when money goes in, from whom, from what sources distributed to him, whom, all of those are still under discussion. So it's a milestone um, uh, achievement to have the fund established, to have that recognition that we need a separate stream of finance for dealing with climate disaster and recovery for developing countries, but all of the details still to be negotiated. Is that not part of the issue? Australia certainly can come away feeling more positive, but haven't actually technically committed to anything specific. Yes, yeah, so there were no new funding announcements from Australia uh, during the COP. There was lots of stuff that came before, and probably the most significant announcement was actually on the mitigation side, agreeing to join the Global Pledge on methane. I mean, on the mitigation front, I'm not sure whether Robin or Jackie, you wanted to comment though, this COP, at the last COP, um, countries needed to bring their NDCs or ratchet up their ambition. This COP, they didn't necessarily have to do that, but what will they be expected to do for the next COP with respect to their climate ambition and their NDCs? Well, there is provision, there are words in the COP27 decision about continuing to ramp up um, 2030 um, targets and policies. Um, but of course, next year is the global stock take. And that will be um, a, a sort of, I guess, checking where the collective action is pointing 
and that gives parties a two-year run to start thinking about preparing their next round of NDCs, which must be submitted no later than 2025, and this would be for the period up to 2035. So, but there was no real, it, that was a bit of a fizzog, really. It was just in a hortatory language, which is the sort you tend to see. But I'd just like to make a point on Australia and climate finance, just to connect the last two conversations. Australia still hasn't uh, deci decided to, to resume contributions to the Green Climate Fund. And I think it's the only developed country to have withdrawn contributions. So it's made a lot of its ramped up aid to the Pacific, some of which is for climate change, and some of it which is clearly has more larger strategic purposes in mind. And I'm not sure whether one is instrumental to the other or whether it's a clever dovetailing. We'll have to interview our ministers about that, Pat Conroy in particular. But they, they're just willfully wanting to put their money where it suits us rather than contribute to this collective honeypot or kitty to help vulnerable countries around the world. And I don't know, Jackie, was Australia put on the rack for that at all? Um, maybe everyone's just happy to have Australia rejoin with some measure of commitment. I think they've got really good press yeah. uh, for doing very little. <laughs> so obviously there was relief, I think, that the Australian government was not turning up with the same kind of posture as that COP26. Uh, there was relief that they were committing to a higher target, but it's still not a sufficient NDC based on a fair share analysis. Um, and there was relief that they were going to participate constructively in negotiations like loss and damage and on finance. So they got a lot of credit for doing that. I think uh, US Ambassador John Kerry patted uh, Chris Bowen on the back quite a lot about that. So that was reported in the press, but things like did we uh, recommit to the Green Climate Fund? Were there any new announcements? Australia also didn't come forward with any money or pledges towards loss and damage. All of that sort of went under the radar um, in favour of, oh, well, at least we're, we're not getting the fossil award anymore and we're constructively engaging in these negotiations. But they did join the methane pledge. They we should pat them on the back case. for that. Yes. And that would put a bit of pressure on our agricultural industry and our gas industry, which is a good thing. We might pick up on, um, you know, what happens after this COP and the potential bid that Australia is putting in for a COP um, at the end of this next round of questions, because I actually wanted to now talk about um, non-state actors and civil society participation at this COP. And maybe I'll actually maybe throw to you first, Janine. You were there on the ground and, right. you know, any comments on their participation or lack of participation and how that may or may not have affected the negotiations in Sharm El Sheikh? Well, it was certainly a different type of COP, not daily seeing the non-state actors and civil society members on the um, campus, on the COP campus. And certainly uh, we had many reports from non-state actors who had trouble getting to the COP. And when they were there, troubles with hotels and accreditation and things of that nature. Um, there was one march that I witnessed uh, that went through the campus itself, but largely they were uh, separate from us. And I think that was perhaps a, a bit challenging. But they made their voices heard. They made their voices heard through delegations. Um, and, and their presence still can be um, very important, uh, should be acknowledged, uh, because they really supported loss and damage. I think their voices outside the campus, uh, through media, through multimedia, Twitter, whatever, um, 
made a difference. It really made a difference to bring the pressure upon the delegations to, to speak up and respond and to know, at least with the small island development states, that they're, they're, they're not in this alone. Um, so I think that was important. It was unfortunate that their participation was somewhat uh, stymied because of the rules and, and un, unseen rules um, from, from the uh, presidency. But um, I think overall, um, we still need to, to, to acknowledge that they did in the end contribute. I know that from a local government perspective, they were quietly pleased or vocally pleased with the outcome. At the they had a multi-level government pavilion. I think there were 150 mayors or governors that participated. And while the you know the language within the um, the Sharm El Sheikh implementation text was light on multi-level governance, or it didn't change from Glasgow essentially, but um, they were very happy that at least for the first time there was a high-level ministerial. Um, on urbanisation and climate change, and and hoping that that will remain on the um, on the agenda for future COPs. So, from a non-state actor, a local government um, constituency, they're at least happy. But did anyone else want to comment on any of the other sort of behind-the-scenes um, players? Yes, as um, head of our delegation, but someone who didn't attend, it was very important to have access to the virtual platform. And also, one normally downloads not only the UNFCCC app but also the COP host app. But after downloading it, I was warned by a cybersecurity expert friend that I should immediately uh, delete it and reset my iPhone. He even said, better still get a new iPhone because it was a major cybersecurity threat. And his sources said that they could basically scrape your email and get access to other apps on your phone. So I warned everyone in the delegation and that was that problem then broke as a news item and most people were using VNP rather than the Wi-Fi and they were not using the official host app, which was really just an extension of the Egyptian government's surveillance mechanisms, which was quite normal from their point of view, but not something we're used to dealing with. So that was, an, I've never encountered that before. And that made it hard for us to follow it from afar, but having trusted sources that can still communicate is always a good thing. But that was, that was quite unique. I guess the other not so positive side of civil society in very broad terms participation was the very significant industry presence, particularly from fossil fuel lobbyists. And there were some quite good reports that came out um, during the COP that shone a light on the number of uh, fossil fuel lobbyists that were circulating um, throughout the venue. I think it was over 600 um, that were could be identified just based on, on their badges. Uh, and the, it did seem that that had an influence um, in some of the negotiating texts that emerged, particularly uh, around uh, the inclusion of low emissions sources uh, as part of the language of, of clean energy. Um, and also the pushback on any language that might have expanded a, f a phase down of um, coal to include gas and oil. So that was probably a really negative aspect of, of, of beyond government participation um, and it, it may be one that we see echoes of in UAE, in Dubai, in COP28 given the similar contexts for that COP. It's a good segue actually, we'd like to end this very brief run throughs of what happened at COP27 and now where are we heading after this and a segue into any comments that the panel might have on what to look out for on the road to Dubai in COP28. Um, and even any comments on particularly significant um, meetings or activities 
that are on the, the road to December next year um, for the next COP. Did anyone who wants to start, Janine? Sure. Um, I think there are quite a number of meetings. There's a usual calendar of events, but I think one of the big shows will be the MDB, the Multilateral Development Bank Spring Meetings, where we hope to see some progress on the call for reforms. There will be a series of different workshops occurring that um, link into the processes of the climate change, um, new collective quantified goal discussions, the issues around the loss and damage fund. There will be meetings of the Transitional Committee, and there will be also discussions around the global stock take, which will be a really important um, uh, process to conclude in 2023 <laughs> um, with hopefully a course correction. And I think that's really where a lot of follow through has to come. Um, we don't need to wait for the COP to occur for anything to change. It can occur at any point in time. Um, emission reduction targets can be changed at any point in time. Of course, there are policy processes that need to be uh, taken account for, but um, the Paris Agreement allows for countries to do this at any time. We do not have to wait for 2023. We do not have to wait for 2025. It can occur, and it can occur now. And, and I think the continued uh, presence and voice of, of civil society, local government, um, and, and governments in general uh, pushing for that type of uh, um, mitigation action, finance, these are things that we need to, to see carry forward through um, next year. We've already mentioned the global stock take, the need for countries to start thinking about 2035 targets, the need for creativity in thinking about solution, uh, you know, climate, um, climate funding facilities for loss and damage, but also for raising you know, we didn't make that 100 billion, we're going to have to have this new target. So creativity is actually absolutely required. And also keeping up the pressure on getting oil and gas into the conversation and it to be a phase out, not a phase down. And maybe we can get rid of that phrase, low emissions um, energy. But I want to just make my final point about process. We know that conventions on torture treat uh, sleep deprivation as a form of torture. So it seems to be um, in, in the breach in the final days of this conference. So it was supposed to finish on the Friday about five or six o'clock. It went non-stop till basically Sunday morning, over 40 hours. And so what happens, everyone holds out and holds out and holds out until the end. And having a deadline is the only way you can force agreement. And so you just stay, you know, the COP chairs, presidents, just keep, keep that process going until something is agreed. This is not a conducive way to be writing rules. I mean, they're not legally binding rules, these COP decisions, but they're guidelines to continue implementing these big treaties that we agree. This is not a conducive way to do that. So it seems to me we need to find more ways of whittling down the text beforehand, um, getting ministers in a little bit early and finding another way, which is a natural thing for negotiators, to keep all their red lines and cards close to their chest till the end and not give anything until I absolutely have to. So there's like a charade up until the end. And then the sleep deprivation kicks in when all the really big decisions are made. And sometimes people are too tired to notice what's happening or they just give up. Like Franz Timmerman said, was asked a question by the journalist on the final day, he said, I don't know, I'm too tired. He couldn't even remember what was in one of the texts. So that seems to me a serious process problem. 
Jackie, final word? Well, I, I think with this series and, and the previous series, we've been following the journey to, to COP, which might make it seem like everything depends on COP. Janine's point was that there's many points at which you can make decisions that don't rely on having to be there in November each year. But also I think we're increasingly seeing that much goes on beyond COP. Um, we'll, we'll have the uh, Montreal uh, uh, Convention on Biological Diversity, COP, that may be another site where we may get some agreement that, that didn't emerge at this COP. G20 was going on while COP27 was going on and some of the agreements around just energy transition, for example, planned for Indonesia emerged there. But also I think it's important uh, in this context of reflecting on the progress that's been achieved all year to take a holistic view. So if we just sort of segmented our view to COP27, we might say, what a terrible year for climate. But if we broaden out our view to look at the whole of 2022, in the context of a really challenging geopolitical situation and the energy crisis that was caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been some remarkable things that have emerged. The US enacting the Inflation Reduction Act that really pumps money into um, a renewable energy transition there. Uh, European leaders who could perhaps have gone back in droves to coal, actually moving more rapidly towards renewables. Um, movement in China, movement in India, and of course here in Australia, we've got a new government, we've got uh, a new commitment to climate. So all of these are really positive things that happen outside of what's happening in a particular set of negotiations. I think it's important to bear that perspective in mind when we think about, well, where are we at at the end of 2022 and where are we at after this final COP27? Gives us food for thought for the next series of the climate talks <laughs> as we conclude this one. And I thank our amazing guests, Robin Eckersley, Janine Felsen, obviously co-host Jackie Peel. Amazing conversation. We could have gone on for a while, but thank you again for joining us. And I hope that you'll join us um, for the series next year. And thank you also on behalf of Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities uh, for joining us across the season for the COP27 Climate Talks podcast and this video. We're looking forward to having you back, uh, joining us for the journey to COP28 next year in Dubai. And we'd also like to thank all of our wonderful guests that have come and joined us for the series this year. And we should also thank the amazing producers behind the scenes that pull this uh, podcast and today's um, video together as well. We are produced by Greta Robinstone, Kaisa Lundberry, Ben Chandler and Ian Yorsky. We thank you and um, yeah, again, we also thank um, Music for a Warming World for the show's music, um, Only One Way to Head. It's very you know, great that we have this throughout the series and thank you for that. Um, and where, yeah, Jackie, did you want to close on where people can find more information about the, the show? Yes, you can definitely follow us, uh, the Climate Talks podcast uh, that's available on our respective websites, Melbourne Climate Futures and Melbourne Centre for Cities. We're planning our next journey to COP, COP28, and we'll be back next year with further episodes of the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.